I want to say thank you for your love and support over the years. Uh, I'm grateful for this church. Your church has gone down the road less traveled for unity and reconciliation for many years. Uh, my relationship with Nick and with Larry has been so life-giving for me. It has really helped me as a pastor in the inner city. You know, my relationship with Waterstone began with Nick 27 years ago as we were board members of Mile High Ministries. Nick was uh, a part of this board, and one of the things I had asked Jeff Johnson, the director of Mile High Ministries, to do to help me as a new pastor in the, in the hood was I needed seminary training. I graduated from North, Denver North High School. I have a diploma from them. I graduated third in my class. Most people don't realize, though, it was third from the bottom. And I needed some serious help. And so Nick took serious the challenge. And Nick and I have been meeting, like I said, for 27 years. In fact, we just scheduled our next lunch this next week. It's been a while since him and I have been getting together. But Nick has become a, a wonderful personal seminary training for, trainer for me. Uh, by the way, before I even preach the sermon, I want you to know I did flunk his class. But we're still great friends. You're, you're going to catch on at the end of the sermon. You're going to say, oh, okay, now I see why he flunked. Okay. Nick has also been a tremendous cheerleader for me. Over the years, I've seen some crazy things happen in the hood. Our, the church is named His Love Fellowship. 27 years ago, I was talking to my wife and kids, and I said, what should we name our church? And at the time, in, in that era, there were a lot of urban leaders naming ministries after themselves. So I, I just threw out there, what about Philobeta Ministries? Everybody were like, yeah, right, we don't think so. And so my wife said, you know what we should call this church? Because the greatest need in this community is for his love. Let's call it his love. I said, you know what? I think that's going to work. And in that community were family members and people that were living there under the ravages of poverty and high-density living. It, was, it just was really difficult. And so... Nick, over the years, has heard horror stories, things that I've experienced as a pastor, and he would just cheer me on, encourage me, and pray for me, and it's been, been such a wonderful support. He even personally supported my ministry, which is unheard of, really. You know, another pastor writing a check to you to keep you going and encouraged. I'm like, man, I like this guy. And then in recent years, Pastor Larry picked up the baton of relationship. Larry and I, we've been meeting and praying and talking about ways in which we can partner. I've greatly appreciated Larry's desire to hear from me the perspective of urban ministry since urban ministry has moved into your community. And he and I are praying and exploring ways in which we can reach your city, our city, with the good news of Jesus Christ. I appreciate your pastor. Larry, he's a wonderful pastor. He's a good man. All right, there we go. The amens are getting a bit louder. I like it. Today, I've been given the honor to come and speak to you about the beauty of unity in the body of Christ. As we think of reconciliation, Unity is at the heart of what reconciliation is all about. It's, it's the fruit of reconciliation, unity. I see a desire when we reach out in reconciliation events and efforts, I see people desiring to bring others together. And that's what unity is all about, bringing people together. But unity doesn't come easy. At least for me, again, working in the inner city as long as I have, 
I finally get it when David said how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Now, David was making a statement as they're going to Jerusalem to go and worship the Lord. But that statement for me has a different connotation. Because trying to bring people together in the hood, together in unity, that's like herding cats. It's really difficult. And whenever we have these moments when we begin to walk in unity, that's when I identify with David, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Well, living together in unity is not always easy. But when we do, we are like the healthy body the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Do you remember that passage of Scripture where Paul is describing the church as the body of Christ? He is the head, but we, the different parts of the body, different members of the body of Christ, form together this diverse but healthy body that cares and loves and takes care of one another. And so when we live together in unity, it's that picture of this healthy body. Our partnership over the years has been that picture of unity for me. It has shown love to me and concern for my work in the inner city. And it has been the other way around. Like Larry was saying, I have love and concern for you all. And many of you have come down to our church to help us with some of our outreach events. And for that, I say thank you. Well, unfortunately, unity in the church has fallen on bad times. The pandemic hit. Need I say more? COVID shut down our country, our churches, our way of relating to one another, our ability to love one another. It's really difficult to love your neighbor as yourself when you're locked in your house. And so the pandemic has really done a lot to slow the efforts of unity. And even though it seems like we're seeing some light at the end of a long tum tunnel, our coming together has been slow. I'm sure there were more people before the pandemic that was filling the sanctuary. And thankfully, you're coming back. Keep coming. Tell your friends and neighbors, get to church. You missed out on a good service today. I'm saying that in faith in case you're not. Okay, amen, all right. <laughs> Amen. All right. It's like we're having to relearn the value of not giving up meeting together. Do you remember that exhortation in the book of Hebrews chapter 10? Do not give up meeting together. Yeah, but there's a pandemic. Don't give up meeting. Be, maybe you'll have to be a little more creative, but don't give up meeting together. There is strength in numbers. We're better together. All right, I'm, I'm, it's, I'm sorry, I have, you're probably saying, man, pastor got something on his ear? Yeah, I'm needing some amen. So, you know, when you see that, that's the signal, okay? Carol Bonnett used to do this for some of you older folk. When I, I'm doing this, I need an amen. Okay, so we're better together. But something recently has emerged that has started trending and threatens our unity. It's an attitude and action that closes the door on opportunities to unite. It's called the cancel culture. Have you heard about it? If you're over 50, just ask your grandson or granddaughter, hey, would you roll that up for me on, on social media? What is it all about? Well, the cancel culture is a modern form of ostracism in which someone is thrust out of social or professional circles, whether it be online, on social media, or in person. 
It's a tactic to silence those who say things or hold positions with which the popular culture disagrees, labeling individuals and organizations as extremists or hate groups. The cancel culture has made it difficult to come together. Discussions on race, marriage, policing, and sexuality have set off dangerous backlash responses on individuals and churches. People are afraid to speak on these issues in fear of being canceled. So when you think about the daunting task of bringing on reconciliation within your community, reconciliation within our country, reconciliation even in our churches, we have to wade through these troubled waters of canceling because people don't want to hear the biblical truths of the value of coming together, the beauty of unity in the body of Christ. This cultural phenomenon is can of canceling is a real danger to the promotion of unity in our country and unity for our churches. So I want to share with you today some tools that you can use to help counter the canceling culture that is pervading our nation and even in our churches. We need to learn how to relate to each other even during times of disagreement. Instead of canceling, we need to learn how to bring reconciliation. So the story that Pastor Larry read to you in John chapter 8, I'd like to, for you to look at that passage again with me, and we're going to dissect it up a little bit. Now, even though there's some canceling going on in this story, it's still a great story because it talks about the, the character and the nature of our Lord Jesus. He is love. He's the God of love, and he is love. His responses in, in the world around him when he walked this earth are the responses we need to have while we're walking this earth and the time that God has given us. The scene is much like our church settings. It starts off with fellowship, fun, great teaching, when all of a sudden, well, let's look at the passage. Verse 1 and 2. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Let me just stop there for a second and just say, you know, when I started His Love Fellowship 27 years ago, this is what I envisioned the church to look like. People gathering from all over the Denver Metroplex to come and hear me teach. Only 27 people showed up. You may think, well, that ain't too bad for an inner city church. Well, I have to remind you, I have seven kids, 16 grandkids. You know, some may call me a good Catholic, but I tell people often, uh, biological growth is still church growth strategy, but not too many pastors want to use that. Nobody showed up. And that was my beginning, my first Sunday. I was at the door waiting 15 minutes till after the church service should have started. My associate pastor said, Phil, don't you think we should get started? Yeah, but there ain't nobody here. He goes, one lady showed up with her kids. All right. Well, then, in this story, going back to John chapter 8, all of a sudden, something happened. Verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, they made her stand before the group. Oh man, I don't even want to know how the cancel culture of that day set this up. 
but talk about your sermon illustrations. Some of you preachers and teachers, uh, if you've ever brought the word to somebody, it is great to use a, some kind of a prop, some kind of a sermon illustration to drive home your point. Now, this, in this particular case, the cancel culture of Jesus' day, they brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery, and they brought her before everybody, stood her up, made her stand in front of the crowd. Oh, man, can you imagine how she felt? My question every time I read this text is, what about the dude? Sisters, am I right? Why, why is this woman brought out? Where's the man at? He's supposed to be stoned too. All right, that's another sermon for another day. But getting back to this sermon illustration point, and by the way, they weren't using this as a sermon illustration. We're going to read later. They were trying to trap Jesus. But I started ministry as a youth pastor at Redeemer Temple Church. It's a place where, actually, I am now the associate pastor. I resigned my position as the senior pastor at His Love and took on a position of an associate pastor from the church that sent me out 27 years ago. And the senior pastor today, Andrew Tyson, used to be in my youth group when I was the youth pastor. How do you like that? And he's called on me to help him engage the community in which their church is located, is now becoming an urban pocket in Arvada. But I was remembering back when I was the youth pastor about a great illustration, a sermon illustration that I can use to drive home the, the point of how this woman who was caught in adultery and stood up in front of everybody, airing her dirty laundry, if you don't mind me using that expression. I wanted the kids to get a feel for how humiliating sin really is. And so I talked to my, one of my student leaders, Vince. Vince was a big, strong guy. I said, Vince, you're going to be busted for smoking weed tonight, okay, bro? He goes, but Pastor, I don't smoke weed. Now, and by the way, it's a twisted world we live in. Today, that's even a non-event, you know. Back then, it was illegal. You could have went to jail for it. And so... I said, Vince, I'm going to have the ushers bring you in. I said, now, I've instructed the ushers to grab you. I want you to put your hands behind your back like you're cuffed. And I'm going to have them push you through the, the double doors just to make an, an entrance. And Vince is strong. I knew he could handle it. And if he couldn't, we had good insurance. So I knew we would take care of Vince. But the, the ushers and Vince, they did a great job. Uh, they, these ushers, they burst open through the doors with Vince. They pushed him in and they said, Pastor, isn't this one of your youth leaders? We found him. We busted him. We caught him in the act of smoking weed in the alley. My idea was the kids would be in silence and awe. I forgot I was in the hood. And many of the kids that I was ministering to were gangbangers. Man, they started hollering and cussing. Some were reaching for their guns. I didn't even know they had one. Like, hey, 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 wait a minute. This is just an act. Vince was not smoking weed. He's not busted. Oh, it backfired on me. <laughs> Thankfully, we all got out of there safely that night. But in this story, back to John chapter 8, the, this cancel culture of Jesus's day, they were wanting to use this woman to cancel Jesus. We're going to see this as we go down. And I'm telling you, can you imagine how she felt? Canceling is so destructive. These Pharisees were using this time of indiscretion 
to take advantage of this woman's failure and ultimately use this opportunity to cancel the purpose and love of Jesus, which is to save a lost and dying world. You and I, we're faced with the same, same uh, oppressive attack by, by people in our culture today that want to cancel the good news of Jesus Christ. The cancel, the can, I want to say cancer, it's like a cancer. The cancel culture of our day does not want to see reconciliation take place. That's right. Verse 5. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Notice our Lord's response. Not a word. No defensive posture. No retaliation. He just wrote on the ground. Jesus wasn't condoning the woman's actions. Adultery's messed up. If you've ever been a part of that sin, you know what I'm talking about. But adultery is not the end of the world. It's not the unforgivable sin. But Jesus was showing the Pharisees and us the way of the kingdom. He was giving us a tool that we can use when the world wants to cancel our message of love. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. In the vernacular of the day, it's be, Jesus would be saying, let any one of you who's without sin cancel her. Obviously, Jesus wasn't ignoring the situation, but he wasn't about to cancel this woman who was caught in sin. Jesus wasn't going to react the way the popular culture wanted him to react in. Sometimes popular culture misses it. Sometimes the news reports we are watching and listening to, they miss it. Instead of reacting, we should be reaching out to help. Besides, this cancer, I'm <laughs> sorry, this cancel culture of Jesus' day, they wanted Jesus to cancel the woman so they could cancel him. You see, they were trying to trap him. We got the perfect trap. If he says, yes, stoner, oh, then what about his message of love? And if he says, no, don't stoner, well, then what about the law? They thought they had Jesus. But the message of Jesus is that he forgives. And he forgives because he loves. Verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. You see, Jesus was practicing what he would later teach in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. If you, those of you that are familiar with that passage, Jesus is saying, if a brother or sister sins against you, instead of posting it on Facebook, instead of putting it out viral, instead of canceling them, go to them. It doesn't say that in the Bible. You're probably saying, what translation is that? But if you read Matthew 18, 15 to 17, Jesus said, you need to go to them privately. In fact, the way to deal with the bad stuff of our society, the bad stuff that happens to us, is with grace, privately 
and with the goal of restoring. You see, that's what Jesus was doing when he was riding on the ground. Many, believe, many theologians believe he was writing out the sins that these men had committed, but maybe with only words that they understood. That's why it said the older ones left first. Maybe they had a little bit more baggage carried with them that they recognized, I'm not, I'm not without sin. None of us are without sin. But Jesus was dealing with them with grace privately. He didn't call them out. The cancel culture of his day brought this woman, stood her up in front of him and everybody. They were canceling her because they wanted to cancel Jesus. He could have did the same thing. Jesus knows the hearts of his people. He knows all of our hearts. He could have canceled them. Hey, Jacob, what about you? This morning. That's not the way Jesus rolls and neither should we. We need to learn the tools of reconciliation, which is love and forgiveness. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. As I said earlier, Jesus wasn't condoning her behavior. He wasn't about to cancel her. Jesus wanted to free her. And once you've been free, stay free. You see, the cancel culture of our day are quick to silence you and I when we bring the message of reconciliation, reconciliation and hope, the message of love, because the popular culture today doesn't understand it. Many of them have been ostracized in their own lives. And they haven't had modeled for them what real love is all about. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up trouble, but love forgives all wrongs. That's how we combat the cancer the cancel culture of our day. We love, we forgive. Love with forgiveness, that equals unity. I wanted to share a personal story of love and forgiveness that happened to my family and I. This December will be 14 years ago when our nephew did the unthinkable. Some of you that are, are older and remember this, our nephew went to the YWAM base, Youth of the Mission base in Arvada, shot it up and killed two young innocent people. He then drove to Colorado Springs to New Life Church where he proceeded to shoot the place up and kill two young ladies' sisters. Many people were shot you can't imagine the fear that ensued in these ministry places. Our world and the families of the victims came crashing down. Unbelievable pain and sorrow consumed us by the actions of our nephew, my nephew, especially for the families of those who died. 
Our sorrow for what had happened was only overshadowed by the pain we knew our family had caused not only the families of the victims, but the families of churches across the world. You can't imagine the focus of being canceled by the world. News cameras immediately set up at my sister-in-law and brother-in-law's house. You couldn't even get into their street. The news trucks had, world news trucks and local news trucks had set up camp. Our church had been infiltrated with news reporters wanting to catch some nugget of information about how this happened. It was, it was crazy. Its impact reached the world. I have a, a friend who's a pastor in, in Cape Town, South Africa. He called, Phil, what's going on? How can I pray for you? I have another friend who's a missionary in Manila, in the Philippines. He called, Phil, I'm praying for you guys. The world, we were on the screen. Many of you, I, I was the face of the family. It was a horrible thing to be associated with. Not the family, but the event. We were being canceled. But here's where love and forgiveness came in. The families of the victims agreed to meet with us. We wanted to meet with them. We wanted to apologize and expressed our sorrow over the loss. Even saying that doesn't really describe how such a gaping hole that we could never fill with our apology. But we wanted them to know that we were sorry. We wanted them to know that that was not something we condoned. It's not something we had wished for. We were so sorry. I had some great friends in ministry that arranged for a place for us to meet. We met at this woman's house. She volunteered her home. It was at an undisclosed place so that it would just be us and the families. It was both good that we could be alone with them and it was also terrifying because now we would see the face of the families of the victim that my nephew had taken. My sister-in-law and brother-in-law, they had been crying like all of us from time, the time of the event. This was just unbelievable. And we decided that they would go downstairs. This woman's house had a beautiful living room and an open uh, stairway going downstairs where my sister-in-law and brother-in-law would wait to meet with each family. When the families arrived, I explained to them what we had wanted to do and thanked them for coming and again extended a feeble and poor uh, apology because what apology can ever replace what they had lost? They were so gracious. They're, I'm trying to hold it in. The first service, it, I had a little difficult time explaining this, so pray for me that I can get through this. But they were so gracious. The first family that went down, there were about 10 of them. As soon as my sister-in-law and brother-in-law saw them come down the stairs, they began to wail and weep as they saw them. You can't imagine seeing somebody so devastated, so broken, and, and, and they could do nothing but weep. And as the family came down, they too began to weep, as did all of us upstairs. 
The owner of the house had beautiful worship music playing, but that wailing and weeping drowned it out. Even now, I have a difficult time holding it in because I remember the emotion of that moment. When I try to compare it to times in my own life, the only thing that comes close is when I realized, like the woman caught in adultery, I was caught in my sin. And standing before a holy God, I had no business being there and being broken before the Lord. I remember weeping. That's the only time that came close to what I experienced that day. We were all crying as we we can hear this wailing going on. But then I don't know how much time had gone by, but it began to subside and we can hear the worship again. So I went to check on them to see what was going on. Surrounding my sister-in-law and brother-in-law was this family in a massive group hug, holding them, crying and praying for them and kissing them and just loving on them. I could hear them say, we forgive Matthew and we love you. I went back and waited for the family to leave when the other family went down. That act of love saved us. If you've ever been associated with some kind of event like this, usually couples that are married end in divorce, the blame game goes on. It's unbelievable. The struggle of even looking at each other when you've had a child do something like this is unthinkable. Their love and forgiveness saved a marriage. I, as a pastor, this should have, event should have shut our church down. Our church's name was His Love Fellowship. How in the world can what took place represent the love of God? And yet, my brothers and sisters from around the world reached out with arms of love. The only way reconciliation will take place is when you and I, believers and followers of Christ who have experienced His love, go out and extend it to others. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Justin, this would be a good time to come on out, my brother. I've asked Justin to back me up musically in case I I can't make it. Church, the only way the world is going to know that we are his disciples is by our love for each other. I told you earlier, unity, reconciliation, it's not easy. It's difficult at times. But if we're willing to extend our arms of love and forgiveness to those around us, the world is going to know we're his disciples. Church, the only way the people in the world are going to know that God loves them is by our love.
The prophet Amos said, do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? My question for you, Waterstone, is can we agree to love? Romans chapter 15, verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes, and I'm reading from the Passion Translation. Now may God, the source of great endurance and comfort, grace you with unity among yourselves, which flows from your relationship with Jesus, the Anointed One. The only way we're going to be able to see reconciliation take place is we've got to tap into the love source, which is Jesus, and then pass it on. Pay it forward. Love the unlovely. Embrace those who have messed up, remembering that you've messed up too. That the love of Jesus will bring healing, restoration, and reconciliation. May I pray for you? Would you bow your heads this moment, please? Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here at Waterstone. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church that gets it. They've been reaching out to me in love for years. But now as their community is changing, as now there are children around this church that want to be a part of this ministry, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Help them, Lord. Give them the tools of that love that brings forgiveness and reconciliation. Heavenly Father, I pray. Give them patience as we wait to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.